morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Second Peter this morning as we pick up where we left off last week. It is good to see you. I know there's many in our congregation who are off uh, traveling. It's fall break, the end of fall break weekend. So I do, I do hope and pray that they've had a good restful week and maybe uh, relieve some stress from their, their worries. Uh, as, as you're turning there to Second Peter, um, I think it's appropriate to start this morning with prayer. Um, I think it's a tendency of mine and maybe of yours to uh, want to ignore some of the evil that's in this world. Um, I have a tendency to want to numb myself with, with sports and entertainment and leisure and really try to stay as distracted as possible from the evils that are prevalent. And as many of you know, this past week that we've seen images coming out of Israel that are horrific. We've seen many killed, kidnapped, left naked, and uh, dead in the streets. We've seen reports of uh, a village that <clears throat> babies were found dead and decapitated. Uh, just horrific, horrible evils uh, that are in this world. Uh, we see that uh, the world is, is raging, and uh, people are protesting, and Riots are soon, probably soon to happen and, and things like that. We, we see that there's evil in this world. And even though we live in a world that tries to justify morality, um, evil is obvious. So um, I'd like to pray this morning as we, uh, as we begin. God is a God who will punish evil. He's a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. Um, but praise God, he's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God that offers forgiveness through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so um, Psalm 145, 20 says, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Isaiah 13, 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Look really quick at Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Let's pray a, a prayer of repentance. Father, we come today um, with worship on our lips because of your son, Jesus Christ. We come today praising your name because you are a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of patience. But God, we know you're a God of holiness and justice and wrath. God, we do repent. If there's sin in my life right now that I have not confessed to you, I bow my heart in repentance. As we gather as a body of believers here today, as we lift songs of praise to you, if our hearts are not right, bow our knees so we can repent. Bow our hearts so we can be reverent because you're a holy God. We pray for Israel. We pray for the turmoil in the Middle East. 
None of this is a shock to you. And Lord, you have all things sovereignly designed. You know exactly what you're doing. And God, we cannot pretend to know. But God, we do rest in the fact that you are sitting on a throne and you are in complete control. And God, though there's evil in this world, we know you will not let it go unpunished. Vengeance is yours. And so, Lord, we just rest in your holiness today. In Christ's name, amen. Second Peter, I'd like to read uh, the verses we covered last week and then finish there about halfway through verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please follow along with me. Verse 1, chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow, them, follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's stop there. This is God's word. Last week, we started this chapter, and we looked at how Peter is beginning to address the severity of false teachers who come into the church as wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in with destructive heresies. They come in and they diminish the word of God. They diminish the authority of God's word, and they do so that, so that they can practice and excuse immoral living and lifestyles. So Peter, he wants believers to understand that there is destructive heresies that work their way into the church, but we, as true followers of Jesus Christ, should be pursuing holiness and godliness. Because why? Because God will punish the ungodly. This is set in his word. And he's going to use these Old Testament examples to show us that, that there are the ungodly who will be punished. So, diminishing, diluting, deleting, or denying scripture and God's authority to accommodate sin, either in your life or in someone else's life, is the gateway to apostasy. That's what we said last week. So we said, beware of any teaching or lifestyle that claims Christ but willfully deviates from God's word. Why? Because it will be punished. So here's the theme of this morning. The wrath of God punishes the wicked and preserves the righteous. This is a theme that's set all the way through Scripture. God is a God of justice, a God of holiness, a God of wrath. The wrath of God punishes the wicked and preserves the righteous. So number one, God's wrath is upon sin, but, good news, by the grace of God, the righteous are saved. This is good news. 
Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So why should we beware of false teachers? Why should we be on the alert? Because God will judge the ungodly. Well, what is sin, really? And how serious is sin? Well, sin is rebellion. Sin at its basis is rebellion. It's not obeying the word of God. It's going against his word. Sin is unbelief. It's denying his word. It's going against his word and saying, I I just don't know if I believe that for myself. It's idolatry. It's putting anything else in front of God and worshiping that thing or that person. Sin is selfishness. It's seeking self-gratification over the glory of God. Sin is pollution. Sin is corrupting. It is infiltrating every area of our life. If we are If we're really honest with ourselves, even our thoughts are polluted with sin. Sin is slavery. It has a gripping effect, and it holds people captive. As R.C. Sproul put it, sin is cosmic treason. What I meant by that statement was that even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. I say this to ask you, do you take sin seriously? He will punish sin. He's a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. Sin, basically, as John Lynn says, is living without reference to God. It's viewing him uh, and his defining reality in our lives as, as unneeded. He, he uses the example of, of saying, well, you know what? I, I just reject the idea of the law of gravity. It, it's too, it's too uh, condemning. It, it doesn't allow me to be free. And so I'm just going to live my life as if there is no law of gravity. I'm just, I refuse to be held down by it. And so I, I feel like I have the free will. I'm going to choose to not acknowledge the law of gravity. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to walk off this cliff. Well, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge the law of gravity, does it? Because what will happen? You will, you will face the consequences of not acknowledging the law of gravity. And so they're saying, he's saying, listen, if you look at God as the supreme ruler of all things, and you say, you know what, I rebel against that, I deny that, I walk away from that, I don't want to acknowledge that, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that he's not there. It just means that you will be punished because sin is serious. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how serious is sin? It's deadly serious. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he said, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. How serious do we take sin? God's divine nature responds with righteous indignation when confronted with sin, but it also reveals his promise of mercy, love, and redemption through Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, we see this. I'm not going to read all of it. Genesis 3, 11 through 19, you see the results of the fall. You see that they denied, they rebelled, they disobeyed, they had unbelief. And so the results of sin was the consequences of sin. And so 
You see in the very beginning that as he's talking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first picture that that there is going to be a promised one that will crush the enemy, crush Satan, crush evil. And we are waiting on this because wrath is on the ungodly, but he preserves the righteous. Some people have a real hard time with the wrath of God. How could a loving God punish people? You ever hear this? This is, this is a hard question. Well, the wrath of God and the love of God go hand in hand. Why is this? Well, the wrath of God is fundamentally an expression of his perfect justice. So it expresses who he truly is, but it it's also serves as a means to lead us unto repentance. So without the wrath of God, we wouldn't be prompted to be repentant people. And so as we are prompted to be repentant people, we see that the wrath of God is also satisfied in his son, Jesus Christ. And so you have wrath and love coinciding on the cross. The perfect display of God's wrath and the perfect display of God's love where Jesus Christ took our place. This reveals the intensity of his love. His wrath reveals the intensity by which he loves us. So from the very beginning, Scripture sets the precedent that God, here it is, punishes the wicked, but preserves the righteous. We see this in the New Testament as well. Romans 1, 18 and 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. So we see that there is a wrath of God even now being displayed as he's handed people over to their sinful ways, to their impurities. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we, we even see in the New Testament, as we've already read, there's examples in the Old Testament, there is wrath against sin. As Paul would tell Timothy, this coincides with false teaching. And why does it coincide with false teaching? Because false teaching leads people into ungodliness. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the, is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jesus one day will return. Amen? And he will return and he will judge. He will judge the ungodly who have not heeded the warnings. Those who are false teachers. Those who are preying on those with itching ears who have accumulated for themselves teachers that suit their own passions, who have turned away from the gospel, who have diluted the word of God and the authority of God so that they could pursue their own passions and sins. So Peter is writing to remind believers that God will judge the ungodly, false teachers, those who succumb to their teaching because in the past he has set a precedent.
to judge the ungodly. This is what we see from God's word. So two, God's wrath is upon the ungodly, but by the grace of God, the righteous are saved. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. A lot is happening here. We see that the precedent has been set that he will punish the ungodly. And example A is angels. Picking up in the biblical narrative, even before creation of the world, we see that there is this astonishing fact that angels sinned. They were in the presence of God and still sinned. They rejected him in his authority. They rejected him in his word. And they, they were led by the first false teacher, Satan. The first false teacher, Satan, put it in their minds, and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Luke 10, 18, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Revelation 12, 7 through 9, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. We see example A, that there is a punishment for the ungodly because he punished the angels. We see in Matthew 25, 41 through 46, I'll just read verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a place prepared for the devil and his angels and all those who follow their false teaching have the same outcome. However, it appears in this text that there are some that are held in chains and gloomy darkness now, which really strikes theologians with all kinds of theories, right? Jude also speaks about this in 4 through 6. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. There's another example given by Jude. That Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, after destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Wow. As Jesus encountered demons, even the demons there that um, came out of a possessed man at the tombs, they said, have you come to torment us before our time? In Luke's gospel account of this, they begged him not to command them into the abyss. So the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. We see the punishment against sin and the punishment against ungodliness in how it relates to even the first sin that the angels committed. Now, what they did, we don't know, but some theologians believe that this refers all the way back to the days of Noah. And in Genesis chapter 6, there's a word here that 
is the sons of God that refers to um, many different takes. So there's three different main views of this, and so I'm going to give them to you, but I'm going to read this first. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the, on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's your main three interpretations. One interpretation, that the easiest one to swallow probably, is that the godly descendants of Seth were intermarrying with the wicked descendants of Cain. That's probably the easiest one. Uh, there's another interpretation that has really no biblical backing, and it would be that these powerful lords of the land were taking the village women for themselves, any that they would choose. They were pillaging the villages. Sounds fun, but that's not really got any biblical backing. And then there's this other interpretation where Job, in 1.6, uses the same word, the sons of God. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Meaning that the third interpretation would be that these fallen angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, and they had relationships with the daughters of men, resulting in the Nephilim. And so the punishment that was put on them was that they were cast into the abyss, held in chains in gloomy darkness because of their sin. What can we take from this? Well, as Luke's gospel says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. God's wrath is upon the wicked, but he preserves the righteous. In the last days, prevalent wickedness will be just like the days before the flood. There will be rampant wickedness, unnatural sexual conduct, demeaning of marriage, and violence. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, verse 5, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he bought, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The wrath of God punishes the wicked and preserves the righteous. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a great way of wording that? He found favor. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah found favor. This is how it began. The word favor there is also the word grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The unmerited favor, unmerited grace was put on Noah during this wicked and perverse generation. It's not that he was good. It's that he was given grace. Not because he was better than everyone else, but because he was chosen by God. It was a gift that he did not deserve. He received grace. Today, if you have received grace, it's not by anything that you've done. It's not the fact that God looks down at a wicked world and says, you know what, you're, at least you're better than they are. I'll give you some grace. That is not how grace works. It's unmerited. 
It's the fact that I am an evil sinner who's capable of all types of things, yet God's grace has been placed upon me. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, Romans 5, 20 through 21, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as, a, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Noah was shown grace. He was, grace was put upon him. And then he's called righteous. And it's not a righteousness of his own. It's a righteousness that comes from God. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is imputed righteousness, an alien righteousness, as, as, as Arthur, who, who, somebody says it. They're super good and super smart, but I can't remember. It's an alien righteousness that comes upon you, that is outside of yourself. This is what happened to Noah. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received a righteousness. Grace was put upon him. Righteousness was placed upon him. And Noah was blameless in his generation. What does that mean? Well, the word blameless, it doesn't mean sinless. It means unblemished. It means unstained from the world. It's the same word that is used to describe animals when they were being brought for a sacrifice. They're unblemished. They're unstained. So by the grace of God, Noah was preserved. He was not corrupted by the false teachers of his day. He was not diminishing the word of God to live in a sensual lifestyle, but he was saved by grace alone. The righteousness was placed upon him, and he was seen as unstained by the world. So, church, here's the message for us. Philippians 2, 12 through 16 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be, there it is, blameless, and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, that you may be blameless. You know, none of us in here are going to be sinless. But if we could walk in a manner that is unstained by the world, unstained by the false teachings that want to come in and twist the grace of God to, to pursue sensuality and sexuality. But if we could remain lights in a twisted and crooked world by the grace of God, we see that God punishes the wicked, but he preserves the righteous. Finally, God's wrath is upon the immoral, but by the grace of God, the righteous are saved. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Another example here is Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude also references this in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve it as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The flagrant sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that of unnatural sexual conduct. Sodomy, 
homosexuality. These are all clearly seen through this story that we read about here in just a second. As James White put it, the unnatural lust or perversion here referred to is that which causes man to lust for different flesh than that which God intended. Just as the angels did not remain in the place where God intended, verse 6, but abandoned their created purpose, so these men abandoned what was natural and pursued what was unnatural, homosexuality. I'm going to read Genesis 19, 1 through 9 and 15 through 17 real quick. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please, only... Do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. A few things you see here is that the word no. The word no is yada in Hebrew. It's used twice here, that we may know them, and then by lot when he says my daughters have not known a man we can tell from the text this is clearly not to know somebody as hey I know you but to actually know somebody in a way that would you know lead to you know sexual intercourse so they say I want to know them and when lot says no what's their response stand back well they say get out of my way have you noticed today when we try to say, you know, that's wrong, that we're told to stand back, that we're told, get out of my way? And then they say, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Then they respond with, you can't judge me. You have to tolerate me. You have to approve of what I want, my wants. And if you don't, we'll cancel you. We'll treat you worse than we'll treat them. The wrath of God that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah in sulfur and fire is intended to be a reminder and a prefigure of the eternal punishment of hell for the ungodly. But God rescues those who are his. And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Genesis 19, 15, 17. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. 
but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The Lord being merciful took him by the hand, grabbed him, pulled him out of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Living in a world full of wicked sexual sin has its effect even on God's children. We are continually tormented by what we see, hear, and are exposed to on a regular basis. You and I, we can't get our phones out. We can't turn on our TVs. We can't really do anything without this being shoved down our throats. We can't be so naive as to think that we who sit under this on a regular basis are not being affected by it. Maybe you're in here today and you're like, you know what, I am being tormented. I am beginning to wear down by the onslaught of the sexual propaganda. So much so that I find myself lingering in areas I should not be lingering in. And this is, if it's the grace of God, the merciful God just would grab you by the hand and pull you out of the sin that you're surrounding yourself with. Warren Wiersbe says, Our present age is not only like the days of Noah, but it's also like the days of Lot. Many believers have abandoned the place of separation and are compromising with the world. The professing church has been a weak testimony to the world, and sinners do not really believe that judgment is coming. Society is full of immorality, especially the kind of sin in which Sodom was famous. It appears as though God is slumbering, unconcerned about the way rebellious sinners have polluted his world. But one day, the fire will fall. Then it will be too late. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The wrath of God punishes the wicked and preserves the righteous. Well, let me end with these verses. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Listen, I began with a prayer of repentance because I know that there's not one of us in here that's not touched by sin. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He knows how to rescue those who are his. He knows how to place his grace upon those whom he's called. And he, he imputes his righteousness to us. We're not judged by our goodness. No, we're judged by the righteousness of Christ in our place. The wrath of God poured out on his Son in our place so that we could be washed, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be pulled out of a wicked world. And so we live as lights for him, for God has not destined us for wrath, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Today, do you have assurance of your salvation?
Have you obtained salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone? If you don't know for sure, then I would plead with you. I would, I would beg of you not to linger, but to bow your knee and know for sure. Because we can't live in a world full of sin and not see its effects on our lives. But God knows how to preserve those who are his. And today, it may not be you, but it may be a dear loved one that you know that the wrath of God is still on. So I call you to bow and to pray for your loved ones today. That the love of God would snatch them out of a world full of sin, a life full of sin, and bring them back. That they would be washed, justified, and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Will you pray for your loved ones today? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we bow before you knowing that you're a God of holiness. You're a God of justice. You're a God who cannot look upon sin. And one day you will return. We know that you will return and you will judge. So, Lord, we pray for those who are not covered by your blood. Lord, we bow before you and we plead on, the, on behalf of loved ones, sons and daughters, cousins and sisters and brothers. We, we bow before you, calling out their names. By your mercy, we ask that you would snatch them out of the evil world, that they would not be deceived by the false teachings of the evil one, that they would not be so rebellious and so lost, but, Lord, you would place your grace upon them. God, you know how to save those who are yours. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, use us as lights in a dark world. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?